Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from all to speed technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are up for this hour to be a part of the program. It is free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I'm your host. Glad to be here with you this hour. It's another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. 1904 release this week, guys and girls, everybody. It uh, it has been an exciting ride. You know, typically when we see new releases come out from Canonical, I can kind of predict what kind of release it's going to be. If it's going to be an LTS release, chances are they're going to take some time and hone the software. They're going to polish the release. It's going to be a very polished and very precise release because they're going to have to support it for five years. And there is a significant portion of the people that utilize Ubuntu that are only going to use the uh, the LTS edition. And so for that reason, we typically don't see a lot of features being introduced in the LTS. Now, the other side of that is when you have a point release in between the LTS, a lot of times what you will see is that you find a lot of features that are coming out. And what we saw with this release was there weren't a lot of features. Instead, there was a lot of polish. And frankly, I think that was a really great choice on Canonical's part. 1904 Disco Dingle breaks us from that expectation. They have a lot of refinements. They don't give us a lot of really new great features. But this is a good thing, and I will explain why in just a moment. 1904, or excuse me, 1904 ships with kernel 5.0, Mesa 19, which is the latest release of the open source graphics drivers. Now, there's not a lot of huge changes. And so if you boot into a machine and I've been running it all week, you're not going to notice massive changes above the hood. But under the hood, they have done some serious performance enhances. And the first time you boot the machine, what you're going to notice is it boots really fast. I mean, the thing just flies. Uh, and that's noticeable right away. Gnome, it's shipping uh, with Gnome, I, I believe it's 3.32. And there are a number of different bug fixes that have occurred. What you have to understand about the Gnome desktop is there were a lot of problems that had popped up with the Gnome desktop. And previous to Ubuntu users using it, as much resources as my beloved Red Hat company has... They don't have the same amount of desktop users that a company like Canonical has. And so when you start to ship software at the level that Canonical is shipping software and you begin to take on the user base at the level at which Canonical takes on a user base, you find very quickly that there are a lot of problems that weren't previously known or weren't previously, how do I say, talked about very frequently, right? They were just kind of either swept under the rug or didn't bug enough people or people like me. I'm the Walmart of Linux users, right? I find a way to work around the problems. I just go, ah, yeah, it's a free operating system. What do you expect? You know, just we'll work around it, right? I don't get, it takes a lot to get me twisted out of shape. And so a lot of us just go, ah, just a bug in Linux. It'll get worked out eventually. When you start rolling out at the scale that Canonical is rolling out, that's when you start to see bug reports pop up. And they have the opportunity to address those and fix those. And so what you found is with GNOME 3.32 that is shipping with 1904, 
a lot of those desktop bugs have been have been worked out. Disco Dingo also comes with a new software package that I was pleasantly uh, able to play with that allows you to track and locate files. And the way it's doing that is it's saving file metadata to a database, and that makes searching in the system much faster. Now, one of the primary workflows, if I can use that term, in GNOME is the ability to hit the super key. And for those of you who don't know what the super key is, the same thing as a Windows key or the Mac OS key or whatever you want to call it, but it's a super key. And you press that button and you begin to search for whatever thing you want to do. So if you want to open Firefox, you type Firefox. If you want to open Chrome, you type Chrome. If you want to open Thunderbird, you type Thunderbird. Now, previously, if you wanted to search for a file, if you wanted to open, let's say, a document that you had been working on, well, that was a little bit different because the search wasn't quite as fast. And so what Tracker allows you to do is search your system based on that metadata. And because it's stored in a local database, it's very quick. And so you're able to find a file on your system or you're able to search your system very quickly. The other thing, and this is something that I think Canonical has really nailed, the Yaru theme pack the Yarroom Themes Icon Pack. They've had a little bit of refinement, and one of the things that I've always hated about GNOME, so much to the point that I did an entire episode on how terrible of a implementation of GNOME this is, is the fact that GNOME is pretty ugly out of the box. I don't find GNOME to be a pretty desktop out of the box. The stock GNOME experience, I think, is pretty ugly. And one of the things that I was, and this is not a, this is not specific to 1904. This happened uh, the very first release that Canonical came out with, with GNOME shipping as the default desktop. They did a very excellent job of holding the user's hand and delivering a desktop experience on GNOME that felt very similar, if not almost identical to Unity. So much to the point that I have clients and family, you know, family members and friends that are using GNOME on Ubuntu and have not realized that they are using an entirely different desktop operating, entirely different desktop environment. Additionally, it would further confuse them if I told them that Canonical pulled this off in just two releases. It's not difficult to ship a usable GNOME desktop infrastructure into releases, right? Because GNOME was an actively maintained project, the default desktop shipped by the largest open source company in the United States. But to take that experience and get it to mimic the experience of a completely entirely different desktop environment, I thought that was something that Canonical did very well. And they've continued to refine on this idea of creating a very good stock looking desktop. So when you install 1904 and it boots up for the first time, there's very little things aesthetically that you want to change. It's a very inviting environment that looks modern and clean and cool and new and if I dare say hip. Kapavik in the chat room says, I wish I liked GNOME. I'd like to play with some Pop! OS. I would check it out. I mean, I th Pop! OS has definitely distinguished itself, and they continue to iterate. I've said this before in the program. I'll, I'll maintain again. It's not for me. I'm just not the user that... I'm just not the user for Pop! OS. But I'm glad that there's competition in that market, and I'm glad System76 is taking control of the operating system that they're shipping to their customers. I think that's a good business decision on their part, even if it's not for me personally. They have added an option in the Grub boot menu to make your system boot into safe graphics mode. Now, this option boots your system with the no mode set to help resolve graphic cards issues. Now, I'll bet you, I will bet you, if I went back into the into our ticket logs at Alta Speed Technologies and I were to look 
the number one call that we get that I can count on coming in at least twice a month, three times a month, maybe even once a week, is there's a flash drive plugged into my computer and, or, well, they don't, they don't know that, right? They just say the computer boots and says no system disk or disk error. Is there a flash drive plugged in? No. Could you please look? There's not. Look, please. Oh, yeah. Well, why would that compute to keep the computer from booting? Could you remove it, please, and try and restart the computer? Oh, that works. That call comes in. I can count on it two, three times a month. By far, the second most common issue that I get is somebody calling in and saying, hey, we tried to do a Linux install or we tried to upgrade or whatever it was we tried to do, and my computer boots up to a black screen. And the answer almost every single time, add no mode set, well, reboot, and then add no mode set to the end right before quiet and boot that argument and all of a sudden your graphics are going to come back. So I think it's really cool that they have addressed that and added a graphic safe mode that allows you to boot straight into there. So now we can just tell clients, hey, you know what, just when you're booting the computer, instead of going up to Ubuntu, just boot into safe mode, see if that works. And if that works, then we'll tell you how, how you can address that permanently. Every time we get a new desktop software release, and this is true across the board, this is true on Linux, this is true on Windows, this is true on Mac OS. What you see time and time again is that the manufacturers of these software continue to imitate or clone things that have worked very well in the mobile operating system space. That started with things like the App Store, right? And when I install Linux on a client's machine now or I introduce a new user to Linux and they ask me how to install software and I tell them, oh, you just it's in the App Store. I say that almost as if it should be an assumed. And the reason I say it as if it should be an assumed is because in 2019, on every other device they use, it is an assumed. That you don't have to go down, you don't go download an APK and run it on your Android device. You just go into the Play Store and you download the app. Okay, you don't download, and I have no idea what the extension is for an Apple thing, but you go into the App Store and you download it, the store that's not for apps, right? So we can apply that same logic, and then it makes a lot of sense to new users. Oh, it's oh, they have an App Store. Oh, of course, that's where I find all of my applications. And of course, that's only going to continue to become more robust with the advent of things like Snap, uh, uh, snap Packages. Much like Android, much like iOS, now we have the ability to control various permissions on the system. And so with 1904, they introduced the ability to control things like notifications. Now, we've had that opportunity to control notifications on Android. We've had the opportunity and the ability to control notifications on iOS. Today, that becomes available to us as Linux users. And I can see myself using the heck out of that. Because there are so many times I will get a notification from some application that I don't want to see popping up on my computer. Just this week, I was ripping some CDs in, uh, I believe it was K3B. And every time a CD would get done, it would pop up this thing. Hey, your CD's done. Okay, well, that's great. What that makes me do, or at least in my mind, is, oh, I better put the next one in because I don't want to waste time. So I completely stop what I'm doing and I put the next next disc in and I was getting ready to prepare for a radio show. And I realize that I have reached a point now where I have blown an hour and a half of my show prep time because every 10 minutes or eight minutes or whatever, I'm cycling through to put the next disc in. And I, I, I looked briefly for a way if I could just tell just just rip the disc and I'll get to the next one when I think to get to the next one. But my ADD doesn't allow me to ignore things. So having a central place to control notifications, I think, is a really great opportunity for us as Linux users. The other thing they have improved, which I use the heck out of, 
I have used Redshift on pretty much every machine I've had for the last, I don't know, two years or so. I think it increases my productivity immensely, particularly when we get into the late hours. There is something, and it's very difficult to explain, it's very much a first world problem. I am very entitled, and it sounds very arrogant to say this, but it is the truth. I have a difficult time sitting down at my workstation when I know at 1130 at night, I'm going to get blasted by six monitors coming on and blazing white light because of all the Firefox and Thunderbird windows that are open. Right. And believe it or not, that actually it, it, it is fatiguing to me. And so one of the things that that program Redshift and programs like it have done allow me to work longer on my computer. And it's more inviting, particularly in the evening hours. I don't have a problem walking down to my workstation and unlocking the thing and starting to work because I'm greeted with kind of a, a cool light. And if you think I'm crazy and if you think I'm entitled and if you think I'm arrogant for saying that, I invite you to check out Redshift, except you don't have to use Redshift because they have their own implementation called Nightlight. And Nightlight actually has some, some things I like much more than Redshift because it allows you to actually set the color temperature. And I and and, and again, and chat room is kind of is kind of echoing what I'm saying. A chat room says, no judgment here. I used Redshift in the middle of the day. It's easier on the eyes when you start stare at a screen for 10 hours. Another uh, another uh, chatter says, even Windows has a night mode now. It sounds really presumptuous when you say, that's the, that's the defining feature of my desktop, is I can use it longer because it changes the screen to a slightly different color. And if you're not familiar with what any of these programs are, they're applications that essentially mimic changing the backlight temperature of your screen to match the I have mine set to match the sun so as the sun begins to set it changes from bright light during the day and 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 begins to cool the color temperature down from whatever 6000k all the way down to 3000k and it almost turns the screen orangish and uh, if you ever try it you'll see what I'm talking about it is a it is a very cool feature and I'm happy to see that they are continuing to focus on this as a feature of the GNOME desktop. The ability to change color temperatures and set all of that statically, I think, are, are really great. And of course, if you do anything like photo editing or video editing, obviously you're gonna have you're gonna have an uphill battle because you obviously can't do any of those sorts of work if you rely on proper color balancing. Now you can cut clips up, but when you go to do the color correction, make sure to disable that. 1-855-450-NOAH, that's 855-450-6624. You can feel free to add your voice to the conversation, questions or comments on the latest release, 1904 of Ubuntu. The sound settings has gotten some improvements. They have changed from a vertically aligned, or excuse me, they changed to a vertically aligned configuration rather than a horizontal form uh, with tabs. Now, some people prefer that. In fact, one of the blogs I was reading and one of the articles I was using to prepare this show talked about how they prefer all of these settings stacked in a vertical configuration as opposed to horizontally in a tab configuration. Me personally, I prefer the tab configuration. And I prefer that configuration because it categorizes various different settings and allows me to get to that category quickly and efficiently. When I want to change or mute my input volume, I don't want to scroll and read texts all the way down. I just want to jump to the input tab and click on the mute icon or unclick on the mute icon in the event that I want to unmute my microphone, right? If I want to change which output device I am outputting to because I'm in a dock or I've connected a USB sound device of some sort, I don't want to scroll until I find the text identifier that tells me which output is set. I just want to click on the output tab and 
change a different output. So it's not for me personally, but it it is something that I guess some people prefer, and it is a change, so we'll point it out. Now, if you're on the, the, the biggest question, should I upgrade? Is it worth my time to upgrade from whatever distro I'm on now or whatever version of Ubuntu I'm on now to 19.04? And my answer is the same as it has been pretty much every time we talk about upgrading, and that is this. If you're on an in-between point release, that is to say you are not on an even 04, so 1604, 1804, 2004 20, is not out, but if 24 would be an even .04, if you're not on an even release of .04, I recommend you stay on that release because that release is an LTS. And the LTS is designed, uh, they put a lot of thought and care into upgrading and the applications that, that go into it and the software releases, and they do a lot of testing. And so if you like a rock-solid environment, and I do, I stay on the LTS. If you want, if you're on one of the in-between releases, if you're in one of the point releases or one of the odd, what we'll call the odd numbers, so 1904, 1810, you'll want to upgrade because they, again, the increase in speed alone is worth it. The refinements are worth it. Obviously, you're going to get things like the latest kernel, and now you're good with security updates. Um, for this cycle. So for those reasons, you would want to upgrade. And uh, I, I've done, I did two machines. I did a fresh install in one machine that I was, that I carried around with me all week and I'm actually using tonight. And the second machine, it, I upgraded from a, I believe it was an 1810 machine. And so we did a single upgrade. Uh, I will try in the next couple of weeks to make an upgrade from the 0.04. Excuse me. I will try and make an upgrade from 1804 uh, to 19. Oh, four, just to see what happens when you skip one and when you're going from an LTS to a non-LTS, and we'll we'll keep an eye on that and, and hopefully be back. Again, one 450 noah That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Arcan, that is a powerful development tool and our project spotlight this week and something that I have been playing with. It is a development framework for creating virtually anything in between your user interface and specialized embedded applications all the way to standalone desktop environments. Now, they have a lot of examples of things that you can do, everything from boot, screen, uh, boot screens to stream media processing. But one of the coolest things that you can do is something called Safe Spaces. And what Safe Spaces does, and we'll have a video link for you in the show notes, it effectively creates infinite desktop screens via VR. And so you can think of it almost as if instead of having desktop work environments, what if I was able to create a, a virtual desktop, a virtual desktop screen that is to say the same thing that I would have as a, as a GNOME workspace. What if I was able to create one of those and just every time I create a new one, it goes out into the atmosphere of my, of my VR system and I can just keep creating them and spanning them right and left, up and down, whichever way I want to do it. And so they have a demo video that shows you how you can do this. This is such a really cool feature. It's such a really cool project. I mean, don't get me wrong. Arcan in and of itself is super powerful and super cool. I had not heard of it. I had not played with Arcan before I came across Safe Spaces. Arcan is what they're using to create Safe Spaces, and it is insanely cool. And so I would suggest that everybody take it out, or check it out, rather. The other thing that I think it bears some acknowledgement or 
something that we at least want to talk about is what does this mean for VR and Linux? Because up until now, VR has been kind of seen as a gaming infrastructure, has it not? Has it not been seen as something that you use just for entertainment? What if VR is an ability to become more active, proactive, and more efficient when you're using your computer for actual work? Because let me tell you something. When I think about the implications of being able to have a, an unlimited amount of screens and the idea that I could sit down in a very comfortable chair and have my workspace as large or as small as I want it to be, and I can zoom in to one screen or zoom back out, that is mind-boggling. Right now, my lab at home, which consists of six screens connected to a single machine, and then two other ones that are connected to my laptop dock, get shoved into the basement because my wife doesn't want what she calls a bad-looking science project anywhere else in the house up to but to include my office upstairs. So it gets relegated downstairs to my lab. And that's where I have to work in, in my in my little basement layer because it's I'm not fit for, for public. Imagine, if you will, for a moment, if I could take my laptop and hook it up to a Thunderbolt dock, and now I have a set of VR goggles, and I can use safe spaces to create recreate the workspace I have downstairs. But better than just recreating it, I have the ability to add to it and iterate on it. I think that's really cool. And the, the people that are doing this, the Power alone that is in this RCAM project is absolutely unbelievable, and I'm surprised that hasn't come across my radar, but I'm thankful that it has now, thanks to bringing it to my attention at Q5Sys. And uh, so check that out. Again, we'll have more links for you in the show notes. Definitely something you want to check out. Now, our next guest is Andy, Dr. Andy Yen, and I'm super excited to have him on the program. He is the founder and CEO of Proton Mail, and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah show. And Dr. Yen, I guess let's start by asking you, who is Dr. Andy Yen? What did you do before Proton Mail? Um, what is Proton Mail? Give us that 30-second elevator pitch, and why did you create it? So my background actually is in physics. So I did my PhD in particle physics, and I worked on, uh, you know, particle physics at CERN for many years. Uh, you know, we, uh, ProtonMail is basically a service uh, similar to Gmail, except it has privacy and security at its core. So it's an email service uh, where we can't read your messages, we don't use your messages to build profiles on you, uh, we don't serve you ads, and we put privacy uh, as a first priority. And the reason we created this service was, you know, we saw back in 2014 uh, that the Internet was going to a place where privacy was really disappearing. Uh, and there simply were not any private options if you wanted to, you know, have an email service that, that you know, was usable. Uh, and because of that, we decided to build ProtonMail to provide consumers uh, with a private option for their email. The difference with ProtonMail is evident from the very, very beginning. From the first time the user clicks on the login page on the ProtonMail's website, what is happening when they click on that logon page and they get the dialog box? A little bit is going on there in the background. Tell me that story. Well, you know, technically what we use is something called end-to-end -end encryption. And the way end-to-end -end encryption uh, works is we encrypt, you know, all your messages on the client side. So when you send a message, we encrypt it actually, you know, before it gets to the server. Uh, and this prevents the server from actually, you know, um, being able to read that message. Uh, so what's different, of course, is, you know, all the, all the encryption is actually done on your device, uh, and it's done you know, uh, either in the browser or inside the native application if you're using our application. Uh, and it's done in a way that's completely invisible to the user, so it's transparent. Uh, and the goal of that is you know, we don't want the user to be interrupted. We want to provide basically the same user experience, but also have this layer of, of encryption uh, built in, which uh, you know, more or less uh, guarantees the privacy protection. 
So on the client side, if I'm using the web browser, the there you have some code that is actually generating a, a private certificate of sorts inside of the inside of the web browser, or is it using standard uh, HTTPS encryption? No, so it's actually generating a, a PGP a public and private key pair, uh, you know, within the browser, uh, and it's encrypting, uh, you know, using uh, those keys. It's not, you know, TLS that we're doing here. It's actually, an, you know, an encryption that is running uh, in the browser um, or in the applications, uh, you know, using public-private key cryptography. You have clients for Android and iOS to prevent any man-in-the-middle attacks. Is there any chance of a desktop client coming soon? Well, we already have a desktop client uh, called the ProtonMail Bridge, and this is basically a software that allows you to you know, achieve end-to-end encryption with ProtonMail, uh, but using your you know, legacy clients like uh, Outlook, uh, Thunderbird, or you know, um, Apple Mail. Uh, so, in fact, that uh, we do have desktop already, uh, but we also are going to, in the future, develop our own desktop uh, email applications uh, in case, you know, you're not a fan of Outlook um, or Thunderbird and you want to use you know, our own application. So, this, of course, uh, is on the roadmap. We obviously have people that are concerned with privacy from all walks of life, and they use a variety of different operating systems. But when it comes to privacy, I think the vast majority of privacy-conscious computer users tend to use Linux. Is Does that factor into your decision for a desktop mail client, and will Linux be uh, one of the platforms that you target? So for ProtonMail Bridge, for example, we already have a Linux version. And, you know, being on Linux is something that is very, very uh, important for us. Um, of course, you also look at the audience, right? Um, ProtonMail has gone more and more mainstream in the last couple of years. Uh, so today, you know, our user base, you know, really does skew to Windows uh, and also to, you know, Mac OS. Sure. Um, with Linux being a smaller minority. Uh, but, you know, being Linux users ourselves, uh, also being software developers and, you know, former scientists, um, of course, you know, we ourselves personally, you know, like Linux a lot. Um, and we do spend a lot of effort to try to support uh, and, you know, have uh, tools that work on Linux. Um, and this is something I think, uh, you know, maybe we'll see more and more of uh, as Linux becomes more and more popular, which is also something that we've seen in the last couple of years. So I have not been following Proton Bridge as carefully as I probably should have. It is still under development and that's still being worked on? I think everything is always under development and always being worked sure. on, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, the software uh, is not in beta anymore. It's not been released. Uh, I think on Linux it may still be in beta. Um, but, of course, you know, software, like any good software, is a work in progress. It's continually adding more features, uh, you know, making it stable, making it faster, making it more secure. Uh, so, you know, there's this constant development, basically, on all of our clients, uh, and we don't, you know, see that changing in the future. I think when it comes to security and privacy and usability, there's never a situation where you say, okay, you know, that's good enough, we can leave it alone for now. Uh, it's a continual process of improvement because security, you know, really is a moving target um, as of that evolves. Absolutely it is. Not everybody is on ProtonMail as much as we might all like them to be. Do you offer a way to provide end-to-end -end encryption for people that are not using ProtonMail? Maybe somebody who is using a not privacy-focused suite like G Suite. Um, is there a way for them to interact with end-to-end -end encryption with ProtonMail users? Yeah, so there's actually uh, two things, right? Of course, uh, if you are sending email to a lot of people who use Gmail, uh, then Google is going to get a copy of those emails. Uh, but, you know, what is uh, still quite useful uh, in that situation, of course, is that your inbox, so everything in your sent and in your inbox folder, um, is encrypted with what we call zero-access encryption, uh, which means that, you know, we actually cannot read the things you know, in your inbox. We can't build advertising profiles there. Uh, we can't sell the data. Uh, and it's also protected in case we ourselves get breached or hacked. Uh, so I think, you know, the, 
I think everybody, of course, can benefit from technology uh, like ProtonMail. Um, but, of course, you know, like communication systems, you know, is with other uh, ecosystems at large, right? And this is why we have chosen to support uh, the OpenPGP standard, uh, because by following the standard, in fact, we're interoperable with any other system out there that also follows OpenPGP uh, standard. Uh, and this is because, you know, it's a federated protocol. Um, we think, you know, encryption should not be a walled garden. Uh, and this is why, uh, as a company, we're pretty committed to doing things in an open source, open standards uh, way. Based on your answer, I am to I'm led to understand that ProtonMail encrypts data both at rest and in transit. So anytime the data is being stored on your servers, that data is encrypted and not accessible even by staff members at ProtonMail, as well as being encrypted in transit to other ProtonMail users or other people that use uh, OpenPGP. Do I understand that correctly? Yes, that's correct. So we actually encrypt both ways, in transit and also at rest. Uh, and you probably saw the recent story where, uh, you know, um, I think Hotmail uh, and Microsoft Outlook accounts were compromised uh, because a customer support, you know, uh, agent was compromised. And then, you know, hackers got into the customer support agent's account and were able to view and read emails of, you know, Microsoft uh, users. Right. Uh, in ProtonMail, because we use the zero access encryption, uh, that's actually not possible because our staff members themselves uh, cannot read the messages. And we can't read the messages because we don't have the ability to decrypt uh, the inboxes of our users. Does this mean if a user forgets his credentials or gets subsequently locked out of his account, that means that they, they themselves can lose access to their own email? Uh, yes. Uh, so we do provide a number of you know, recovery methods, right? Sure. So for example, you, know, you can export and save a copy of your encryption key in case you forget your password uh, you know, someday. Um, but of course, if you lose your keys, um, you lose your password, you lose everything, uh, then that's the nature of security, right? If we mm -hmm. can't get into it, um, obviously we cannot find a way to let you get into it, but it also means that a hacker can't get into it too, right? Uh, so, you know, it, it's one of the trade-offs that, that you need to, you know, be aware of. Uh, what we tell people is, of course, save your password in a safe place, right? Download a copy of your encryption keys so you have that, uh, you know, in case uh, you forget your password. Save your encryption keys in multiple locations uh, so that if you lose your computer or a device, uh, you know, you still have a copy of it somewhere else. And but I think these are just, this is kind of like the basic, you know, online hygiene techniques that I think everybody needs to have, right? It's, it's kind of like you always need to have backups. You always, you always need to, you know, um, put your password in a safe place, uh, things like that. Do you see email evolving to meet the security demands of the future? Or do you think at some point we abandon email altogether in favor of a newer technology? The reason I ask you that, Dr. Yen, is because as I have watched email evolve and I have watched one iteration after another, of a company tried to implement security protocols around email, one of the things that I have seen is that it appears to me, and again, I'm not an expert in this field, but it appears to me that email was designed at a time where we didn't really prioritize security, and now the security needs of 2019 have obviously changed a little bit. Is ProtonMail, as you guys are going through your development cycle, do you look and say, you know what, this is a, this is a really secure, really comfortable way to exchange messages between one user and another in an encrypted uh, and secure fashion? Or do you look up and say, you know, actually, um, at some point, if we had the option, we would do a complete overhaul and start from ground one, ground zero and design a secure messaging system from the ground up? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, 
if you look at the internet, so actually the World Wide Web was created at CERN back in 1991, right? So that's kind of also coincidentally the recent institute where uh, ProtonMail you know, was uh, initially developed. Um, so if you look at kind of like the history of the web, it was really a means for you know scientists to share information and share data. Uh, and security obviously wasn't the highest concern there because scientific research tends to be very open, right? Um, I think you know people. When, when the web was made at CERN in the early 90s, uh, we didn't imagine that we'd be using it for, you know, banking, right? Uh, so the needs, of course, uh, of the world have evolved, um, but the protocols have largely stayed the same. Uh, and with email, the challenge is if you want to change the protocol, uh, you need to get every other email service in the world to also change the protocol. Uh, and that's the nature of, you know, federated systems is that, you know, uh, because it's open to everybody, um, everybody also needs to adapt if you want to change it. Uh, and inherently, that makes a protocol, you know, very, very difficult to change. Um, but email also, because it's federated and everybody can use it, um, is actually today the most common form of, you know, communication, right? And your email account essentially is still sort of your online passport. It's really your online identity. All your other accounts are linked, you know, through your email. Uh, and for this reason, email, despite being kind of old protocol, I really don't think it's going to go away. They've been predicting that the demise of email since actually the early 90s, right? Uh, and even today, it's still kind of going strong. Um, of course, you know, email will be complemented by other forms of communication. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I can't imagine a world where email is completely gone. Uh, and because of that, uh, there are some legacy challenges uh, due to the old protocols, which, you know, really uh, limits what you can do. Uh, but I believe it's still very important to make an effort uh, to strengthen email security and privacy. Um, and, you know, the work that we do with OpenPGP in terms of pushing the standard forward, um, you know, adding new methods, uh, you know, making it more secure and, you know, um, modernizing the, the um, crypto, uh, these are all things that I think, you know, over time uh, can make the email ecosystem uh, more, you know, um, kind of more secure and also really in line with what we expect from modern crypto. Speaking of open standards, one of the most exciting changes that has come to the latest version of OpenSSH, I believe it's 8.0, is quantum computing resistant keys. Does ProtonMail have any plans or any thoughts of utilizing some of that same technology to become resistant to quantum computing keys? As a physicist, one of the long-standing jokes uh, in you know physics community is quantum computing uh, is always ten years in the future. Uh, it doesn't matter which decade you're in, right? I think we we don't expect to see quantum computers, let's say, right around the corner, right? Um, it's a technology that obviously will take some time to develop, and at the same time, you know that's good because that uh, provides a lot of time for the security community to begin working on some of these you know post quantum algorithms algorithms to make security, you know, um, and encryption still work even in the quantum computing world. Here, you know, we're not really in a rush to say, you know, tomorrow implement new algorithms. Uh, we're not going to replace, you know, RSA uh, right away. Uh, but uh, it's something that we're constantly watching and we're constantly observing. Uh, and, of course, I think as we get closer, you know, to the date when you can't use RSA anymore, um, we will, of course, have migrated by then. Uh, but uh, it's, it's, I, I think it's still a ways off. A lot of people remember back when Edward Snowden was arrested, the rise and prominence of LavaBit and how that came into the limelight. And they were casted as the email service that provided privacy but allowed Snowden to, to do what he did. And in that scenario, they were forced to hand over their encryption keys. Uh, Dr. Yen, I have to ask you directly, could this happen to ProtonMail? 
So the architecture is actually quite different, right? Um, we don't actually hold a, you know, a usable copy of the user's encryption keys. So, you know, that request, if it came to us, would be asking us for something that we simply don't have. Uh, so, you know, for that reason, uh, we wouldn't be able to comply to that request. Uh, the second thing, of course, is also our legal jurisdiction. You know, being based in Switzerland, uh, protected by Swiss privacy laws, uh, we also would not be obligated to, you know, provide that information because, um, uh, you know, under Swiss law, there's no way to force you to hand over an encryption case. On that note, I wanted to ask, did you choose to base in Switzerland because of the privacy or was it happenstance? Were you already in Switzerland and you said, hey, I am just at a place and I live in a country that lends itself to being uh, very privacy conscious? How did that come about? It was actually the second one because, you know, CERN is based in Geneva, Switzerland, and we were already here. And when we actually did the legal analysis, it turns out that Switzerland was a great place for this. Um, so, you know, that made a lot of sense. And that's why we're here. You've made comments in the past about Google and Facebook and their lack of uh, alignment between user privacy and their business model. That is to say, Google makes money off of selling users' data. And we all know that. And they're pretty upfront and honest about the fact that that's how they fund their business model. Do you think that this is ever going to change in the future? Or are services like Gmail, for example, simply too lucrative for them not to data mine their users' data? I think this really depends on consumer attitudes, right? Uh, you know, in, in 2010, Zuckerberg famously came out and said, you know, privacy is no longer a social norm, right? And then uh, this year, recently, he came out and said that he's going to shift his focus on user privacy, right? Um, this wasn't because he had a change of heart or because his business model changed. You know, he's saying this now um, because consumer attitudes have shifted. So I think if consumer attitudes continue to shift towards, you know, demanding more privacy and more security, actually, you may see the momentum begin to shift towards services like ProtonMail, which are delivering, you know, um, privacy and security. You know, largely, of course, services cost money to operate. Google costs money to run. ProtonMail costs money to run. And the choice is how do you pay? And you have two choices today. You pay either with money or you pay with your data and your privacy. And what we're seeing is that I think fewer and fewer people are willing now to you know, pay with their privacy and more of them are interested in paying with actual money. And this will, of course, naturally cause a business model of the internet to evolve uh, if consumer sentiment uh, changes. Obviously, if you want the most out of ProtonMail, you offer subscription services in which users pay to utilize your service. And uh, I'm one of those customers. That said, you do offer a free platform, though. Yes. And we must because we have a lot of users in countries like China, Russia, or, you know, for example, in Iran, where you can't even use credit cards that simply don't have the ability to pay us. Uh, and, you know, a big part of our mission is enabling, you know, freedom of speech, uh, democracy, and protecting journalists and activists, right? And that part of our mission cannot be done if we put a paywall in front of our services. Uh, so for this reason, you know, we're highly committed to maintaining a free service. It's not good for profit margins, but I think it's very important for the mission and the impact that we need to have on the world. Last week, we aired an interview with a chief software engineer from Yubico, a company that makes a hardware security key called the YubiKey. Are there any integration methods with the YubiKey with ProtonMail for two-factor authentication or even better, maybe some plans for FIDO2 down the road? And if not, have you looked into maybe implementing hardware security uh, tokens to uh, increase security? Yes. So actually, we already have an implementation of this that is uh, working and in beta. So we're definitely going down this uh, path, and you know we're hoping to do the public the public release of this uh, sometime this year. So that's definitely you know um, on our roadmap, and that's one of the features that I really want us to get out there actually. While we're still on the crypto topic, you currently accept Bitcoin as payment for ProtonMail for the before mentioned paid 
plans that you guys offer and some features. Are there any plans to accept maybe additional cryptocurrencies, maybe like Ethereum? Talk about that. If you look at our suggestion for it, right, uh, there's probably hundreds of cryptocurrencies that people want us to accept. There's a time and overhead and efforts adding support for every single one of them, right? It's not something that you can do easily. Payments is also particularly sensitive. If you lose someone's payments, uh, you know, that will really piss them off. So I think, you know, we, of course, cannot uh, support every single cryptocurrency out there. Um, we probably will support a couple more of them, like Ethereum and some of the, you know, bigger and more famous ones. You know, just because we're a crypto company doesn't mean that we're going to go out and support every single currency that's out there. Uh, we'll pick a couple, and I think uh, that's probably the best that we can do. By and large, cryptocurrencies is still relatively niche uh, in terms of overall payment volume. Additionally, it's fairly simplistic and fairly straightforward to transfer between one cryptocurrency and another. So if you're my, like, I'm, I don't mine Bitcoin, but I spend a lot of Bitcoin. There's nothing stopping me from mining whatever currency I decide or cryptocurrency I decide to mine, converting that into Bitcoin and then using that to purchase goods and services like ProtonMail. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, so this, this is why for us, you know, um, we think it's sort of already in some ways kind of a solved problem. Uh, of course, we can improve it a little bit. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a tough one, right? And in terms of allocating our resources, it's at this time, you know, not the best place to put all our resources. We touched on the Proton Mail Bridge a little bit, but for those that maybe haven't heard of it, can you tell us what the Proton Mail Bridge is? Well, the bridge is uh, basically a software that sits between, you know, um, our servers and your local mail clients. Uh, so, of course, you know, if you use Thunderbird uh, or Apple Mail, that doesn't do any end-to-end -end encryption. Uh, so what it does is it passes messages to the bridge. Uh, the bridge applies the encryption, and it communicates with our servers. So it's a way for you to get end-to-end -end encryption, uh, but still keeping your existing email client and your existing email experience. Generally speaking, what are some of the areas that you're focusing on the advancement and development of ProtonMail? Obviously, there are a lot of things that you could choose to concentrate on. All of them are very good from my experience, but like you said, everything is always a moving target. Uh, are you looking at stronger security, a, a different U UI design, additional features? What, what is coming next for ProtonMail? Essentially all of the above, right? You know, our priority, of course, is always security and reliability. And we always spend, you know, most of our efforts uh, on ensuring that from a security and reliability standpoint, uh, you know, we are um, kind of at the cutting edge. Uh, so that's priority one. Second thing, of course, is usability. Uh, so we do expect to see some actually a pretty major UI revamp coming out this year. And third after that uh, really is what I call, you know, kind of expanding the ecosystem, right? Um, email is great, but if you can have email with calendar and also file storage, that's even better. And that's really where I think the long-term vision is, is, you know, kind of building out the entire suite of products that Google has, uh, but doing it in a way that puts consumers first and puts privacy first. Let's dig into that a little deeper. Talk a little bit about Proton Drive. What's the general idea of Proton Drive? Where are they in the development process? And, and, and when might we see that come to fruition? Well, it's a big project, right, uh, especially on the infrastructure side. So I think we're looking probably, you know, between one and two years uh, before we get to the release. Uh, but the idea, of course, is, you know, email uh, is closely tied to, you know, file storage. Uh, you know, everybody that uses ProtonMail would also like to have a secure online file storage. Uh, so we could use end-to-end -end encryption that we pioneered on, you know, um, 
you know, mass uh, consumer email and also adopt it to, you know, file storage, uh, then I think, you know, that adds a lot of value to our existing users. And that's what we want to uh, do, you know, going forward. Uh, it's obviously a lot of work uh, because we host all of our infrastructure in Switzerland uh, for security and privacy reasons. So that requires, you know, building out, uh, you know, massive infrastructure here in Switzerland uh, to support the data volumes that Proton Drive would attract. Further digging into the idea of an ecosystem that provides privacy and security for your users, talk about Proton VPN. What led to the decision not only to run an email service, but to jump into the business of VPNs? It's actually quite logical. A lot of countries, um, I would say, don't really stand for what Proton Mail stands for. And we've had incidents in the past, uh, for example, where you know, uh, Turkey uh, blocked us for a few weeks. Um, Russia tried to block us you know, for a few weeks. Uh, and these sort of situations we expect to come up more and more you know, as we expand and grow. Uh, so the idea of providing Proton VPN as a free VPN service uh, is really so that you know, if our users in a certain country um, start having issues connecting to uh, ProtonMail, uh, by using ProtonVPN, they can still get access to the ProtonMail service. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's kind of um, the logic behind why we decided to launch a VPN service. As giant Linux nerds, I'd be somewhat remiss if I didn't ask you what the likelihood of being able to integrate things like WireGuard now that it has become part of the Linux kernel, obviously WireGuard being the VPN client that's built into the Linux kernel that is touted as a, a very robust, clean implementation of a VPN by Linus Torvalds himself. We have played with it here on the Ask Noah show and, and provided a tutorial to users on how to get it up and running. Is that something that ProtonMail would consider? Uh, yes. Actually, uh, last uh, Christmas, we actually ran a fundraiser together with WireGuard to raise money for WireGuard development. Uh, so it's something that we're you know, watching very closely and definitely supporting. And it's on the roadmap, so I think we'll see it sooner or later. Um, it's quite advanced, of course, on Linux, but compared to OpenVPN and you know, IGV2 protocols, it's still, I would say, you know, a decade behind in terms of stability and you know, platform support. But it's, it's, I think it's developing very quickly, and it may soon get to the stage where you know, we can deploy it on a large scale. You and your team have built uh, an email service with privacy and security foremost principles, and I love that about ProtonMail. It's why I'm a ProtonMail user. It's why I encourage all of my listeners to be ProtonMail users. For all of the aspiring people that are out there and motivated by hearing you talk, they are listening to you and they're saying, this is so cool. What? Dr. Andy Yen has accomplished is awesome and what his team has accomplished is fantastic and the product that they're making is great. If they want to go and create something, do you have any general business issues, tools, or advice that you could give to that person that's out there that wants to create the next thing designed with security and privacy in mind as its core foundation? Yeah, the advice that I would give to you know people is whatever you do, um, I think you should make sure that you have the proper alignment, uh, you know, between uh, your project and also your users. So if the interests, if your interests are fully aligned with your users' interests, uh, this will do two things. First, it will, you know, build a community uh, which will support the project. And two, it will really, you know, kind of avoid you having to make some of these, you know, maybe um, sometimes, you know, ethical choices about whether you do the right thing or not, right? Um, so I think it's, of course, in business, very important uh, to, you know, do the ethical uh, things, uh, you know, build technology that's actually for the good of mankind. And if you can align your business model with your user's interest, uh, then you can achieve that. And I think, uh, you know, that alignment uh, really, you know, builds a community that can sustain and, and support any enterprise. Uh, so that's something that I recommend that you always look for the first thing whenever you start, start a project. You mentioned earlier in the interview that 
the, one of the primary reasons that you support Linux, even though it has a small market share, is you yourself are a Linux user. Can I ask, what distro do you prefer and why? <laughs> so uh, we use a lot of uh, CentOS and Red Hat. Uh, that's uh, very popular uh, within Proton. You are in good company then because I am one of the biggest Red Hat fanboys you'll ever meet. So <laughs> that uh, I find them to be a, a very robust and, and enterprise-grade product, and, and I'm, I'm happy to hear that you too are a, a CentOS user. Dr. Andy Yen, he is the CEO and founder of ProtonMail and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah Show. Dr. Yen, thanks so much for taking the time to be here with us. We'll get you back in the program real soon. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having me. I hope that was interesting for the audience as well. Yeah, you bet. one 855 noah That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. We ran a little late into the Linux Newswire. We go with Eric, the IT guy. Here he is. From the Linux Newswire studio, this is the Weekly Roundup with Eric, the IT guy. Hey, Noah. Happy to be with you again. And here are your Linux and open source headlines. Canonical, maker of the Ubuntu Linux distribution, continues to work with companies all across the industry to provide more and more software in an accessible, easy-to-use, universal packaging suite. Their latest edition, Microsoft Open Source Code Editor Visual Studio Code. To date, the community had been providing a VS Code snap package. However, now it is officially released and supported by Microsoft. This brings the advantage of a containerized application, easy to install, and automatic updates to one of the most popular IDEs currently available, and provides Linux support right out of the box. In other news on the universal packaging front involves the release of Fincible on Electron. Fincible is a product of Chart IQ as a desktop integration platform that allows users to define their own dashboards. This includes data analyt- analytics applications like Yellowfin, encrypted data transfer by iPushPull, and many others. Chart IQ helps design software for companies to help manage their new and legacy systems to help track business performance and financial data. By porting Fincible to Electron, the open source web container means that their growing suite of tools is now platform independent and can be utilized on all major operating systems, including Linux. Mozilla recently spotlighted a new release for Hubs. Hubs is a sister project to Firefox Reality, an effort to continue development of open source mixed reality social platforms. Hubs is a growing web-based application built to allow VR interactions of users with their friends with nothing more than a URL, no software or add-ons needed to install. Their latest release includes a Discord bot in beta to allow a Hubs bridge with Discord, improved moderation support, and snapshot support of live streams. Mozilla values the work being done on mixed reality platforms as it will enhance the experience of online interactions. Check it out today at hubs.mozilla.com. E-Security Planet, a security-focused technology journal, published a roundup of interviews and studies identifying the key attack vectors and most sought-after technologies for 2019. Their conclusion was that attacks, attack success, and attack sophistication were all on the rise at an alarming rate. Accenture, a global IT provider, saw that malware attacks are costing 11% more year after year, and an estimated $2.6 million per attack in 2018. CyberEdge, a vendor research and marketing company, reported that over 78% of reported cyber attacks are successful. FireEye, a security development company, reported that in 2018, the average time to recovery was approximately 50 and one-half days. These reports all paint a gruesome picture of the status of data security in our growing world of gadgets and connectivity. Experian released a study that shows only 36% of polled organizations have a plan, conduct drills, and have the appropriate tools in place to combat data breaches. Accenture's report provides some keys, however, to combating these threats. Invest in systems automation, be able to deploy new infrastructure as needed, 
build up orchestration of these systems, deploy and enforce pre-built configuration and softwares to all systems, and CyberEdge added that machine learning and executive buy-in will be keys to alerting and defending against security threats in today's world. For Linux Newswire Studio, I am Eric, the IT guy. Now, Noah, back to you. A bit of feedback uh, I wanted to air, uh, mostly because I just want to respond to some of the things that um, the gentleman wrote. And he says in his feedback, Noah, this letter may sound like a backhanded compliment. I give you my word. I intend it only as a positive thing. But in order for me to contextualize it, I must tell you some of my initial less than positive reactions to you. I was perpetually involved in radio in the early 70s for a short while. Joe Collins, in a recent YouTube video, presented that he discussed not liking some Linux YouTubers because they tried too hard to be professional, and I agreed with some of what Joe said. In general, even people I don't personally care for appreciate the tremendous amount of efforts and soul they put into making their videos. But And then he goes on to explain and give some examples and cite some specific examples um, of the kind of presentation and the kind of presenters that he doesn't care for. Of course, I'm included in that. Uh, I'm shortening that up uh, for, uh, brev uh, for to, to be a little bit more short and concise. The uh, feedback goes on to say, Noah, I thought you were like some of these other guys. You sound like them. In terms of your professional radio voice and glibness, this is not an insult. Trust me, I'm as glib as they come, but I'm not a knee-jerk kind of guy. So I generally just boycott these folks. When you turned up on Destination Linux, I was startled and thought, well, fine, these guys like him. That's Jake with me. I can live with it. The more I listened to you, the more I thought, you know, despite how Noah presents, I tend to agree with a lot of what he says, an unusually lot of what he says. So naturally, I started paying even closer attention to you. Then I started to think maybe this guy is genuine. The more I listened to you, the more you came off as warm, funny, and a friendly guy. Then I saw that you were independent and affiliated with the DL group. Super for my tastes. That's a step way up. And now when I listen to you, especially with your interview the other day, in the meeting, each member of the DL series, I found you to be a pretty terrific guy. You seem to be more about just monetizing on Linux. You seem to have a true passion for it and a concern for the community. So now you can number me among your fans. It makes sense if Zeb and Ryan and Mark like you. That's uh, <clears throat> it's going to be uh, Michael. But I, I'd find you worthy too. So again, we have a happy ending. I now number you among the people that I recommend highly for anybody looking for YouTube Linux videos. I'm delighted to have bookmarked the Ask Noah show in my browser, and I hope, honestly, that you'll take my misgivings aren't offensive to you. I think what your show is and what it's become, I keep an open mind. You are a passionate guy who can overcome any misgivings and win someone over. Uh, and so what I wanted to say to that, and I read this not on the air to pat myself on the back, but I read that so I can publicly address a couple things. First of all, please send in critical feedback. I We don't promote the YouTube channel. We don't promote the YouTube version of the show. You can find it at youtube.com slash We put it there because we're told by people, hey, I listen to your show on YouTube. That's the way I choose to subscribe. And uh, and that's fine. And I understand that YouTube is where the eyeballs are. We just don't put a lot of time into it because I just don't care for the platform. I don't want to give Google any more money or any more time than I absolutely have to. Uh, but you as the listener are valued. Don't mistake that. I don't value YouTube the platform. I value you the listener. And I had a guy last week leave me a comment on YouTube that says, and I quote, I promise this is the most informative Linux show out there. And I cannot even begin to put into words what that means to me when I read stuff like that. And so positive feedback is definitely appreciated. But critical feedback is equally, if not more important, because it allows us to direct the show and allows us to make changes to impact the show. 90% of people who don't like the show will just shut it off. They'll unsubscribe and I will never hear from them. And so this is me asking you, the listener, 
to be critical and let us know how we can make it better. But the second thing I wanted to point out, and, and Kapavik and I just got into a discussion about this in the chat room. It took a little bit for this show to find its feet. Over two years, I would say we have made some drastic changes from the way episode one went to the way this episode 124 has gone. And so if you know somebody that hasn't listened to the show for a while, would you please invite them back? Would you please let them know that we've continued to iterate on the show? And I fi I finally feel pretty comfortable that this show has found its power swing. And it seems like you, the listener, agree because that's what I'm seeing in the feedback. I believe we're there. So please help us spread the word. When we tweet out an episode that the latest episode is out, you don't know how much it helps us to retweet that, to share that on social media, to share the, the, the links on Facebook. All of those things help us spread the word of the show and it attracts guests like Dr. Andy Yen who then come say, I want to come on the show because I care about presenting on the Ask Noah show. Hey, we continue next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. Huge thanks to Sarah, our call screener, Ben, our producer. There's plenty of more content for you 24-7 at asknoahshow.com. We'll see you next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central.